0: Turn again in God's word to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4. I'm thinking particularly of verses 13 to 18. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, when they visited Thessalonica, only spent three Sabbath days there before they were driven away due to the persecution from the Jews. And so they had those three weeks in order to instruct uh, the people. They they saw converts. Some Jews were converted. Some who were devout Greeks. And not a few of the leading women. They saw conversions. But they had a limited time to establish them in the faith. Even if they taught every day. Even if they preached and preached and lectured and discipled and they had fellowship together, discussing the things of the faith, even still there's a limit to what can be taught, and there's a limit to what can be absorbed in such a small space of time. And so as we come to First Thessalonians, this epistle that comes from Paul, we see that there are theological inconsistencies. There are things that the people don't understand, and they don't know. It's understandable. That in this church, there are theological errors. And particularly, I think, because it's a majority Gentile church. If it had been a majority Jewish church, they would have had the Old Testament scriptures and a better grounding, a better start, a better foundation in order to reflect upon what Christ has accomplished. But because it's a majority Gentile church, they are at a disadvantage And there is theological error. But it's very clear from what we see in verse 13 that the theological error comes from ignorance. Look there and it says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. There are theological errors in the church today which come through deviations from the truth. People who begin holding an orthodox faith Pledging themselves to uphold a confession of faith, and then they deviate from it. They said they held it, they said they believed it, and then through time they change. It's an apostasy in mind and even in behaviour. And so there are all sorts of heresies and heterodox teaching that comes from people who once said they believed the scriptures. But that's not what's happened here in Thessalonica. It's a case simply of ignorance. The limited time they had to be instructed meant that there are certain things they just don't know. And one of those things is about the resurrection. This section here in chapter 4 and then the section we'll look at, Lord willing, this evening into chapter 5 deal with the, what we call eschatology. That is a study of the end times. These Things that happen uh, in the latter days. And we can divide eschatology really into two sections. One deals with you and with me. What happens to me as an individual? Personally. What happens to me when I die? And what happens to you when you die? What happens to the body? And what happens to the soul? And what destination do we go to? That's personal eschatology. But then there's the more general eschatology. What happens to the world? What, what events precede Christ's second coming? What are the signs of the times? And so on. And these are things that Paul deals with, not only in this epistle, but also in 2 Thessalonians. But particularly this morning, we're thinking uh, very personally, what happens to believers. What happens to them at death? What happens to them at the resurrection? The first first thing I want us to see here is the problem that the Thessalonians faced. And it's a similar problem to what we can face. It is there in verse thirteen, it was their ignorance. I want you to I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, speaking here of those who have fallen asleep, Paul has in mind Christians. Those who have died in faith. And we'll, we'll come on to that falling asleep in a few moments. You can see there in verse 14, he clarifies it. Those who sleep in Jesus. So these are Christians who have died before. Before. Before us, they preceded us. And for the Thessalonians, this came somewhat as a surprise. Perhaps their thinking was that if they had been saved, they'd been delivered by Jesus Christ, they'd been saved from the one who has the power of death, maybe they thought that they would not die. They thought that Christ would return so imminently and so soon that none of them would taste death. You see, the sting has been removed from death, we know that. We have the victory over the grave, but these Thessalonians seem to be surprised that uh, fellow Christians have died. And that leads them to think these fellow Christians who have died, are they going to miss out? Have they lost out on something that we hope uh, to, to enjoy? They won't be here. When Christ returns. And so, of course, what is going to happen to them? They've died and they've lost out. Uh, we may not have this same theological error. I, I suspect most of you know the answer already. It contains it quite clearly here in what we've read. But nevertheless, although theologically we may be signed, emotionally we can have a very similar view, can't we? To the Thessalonians. We all have people we know. That have died in faith. And they are no longer on this earth. And we deeply. Deeply miss them. And there is a sorrow isn't there. There is a sorrow. A sadness. We shall not see them again. On earth. We shall not see them. We can no longer talk to them. We can no longer have the fellowship with them. That we once had. We used to sit together in worship. We sang the psalms together. We met to pray together. We were in each other's homes, fellowshipping together. But all that has come to an end through death. And there's a sadness. Nothing can make up for that sadness. It's a loss to us. And I suspect you all know what I'm talking about. The problem is however that we can over sorrow we can sorrow excessively we can grieve so much that we're grieving without hope as the Gentiles do. I want us to be very clear here in what Paul says in verse 13 he doesn't say that it's wrong to sorrow that that would be a wrong thing to say sometimes you have Christians uh, maybe well meaning they want you to get through your grief, and so they just tell you to catch yourself on, to stop crying, uh, to get on with life, stop sorrowing. Uh, we, we know our theology, and we just have to accept that. Uh, but Remember the Lord Jesus Christ, who was a true human, and had truly human emotions. What did he do when his friend Lazarus died? He wept. He cried. There was a full venting of his feeling. You could see what was on his heart because it was evident on his face. He wept. He groaned deeply in his spirit and was troubled. There are many other examples in the scriptures of saints who mourned. Think of Joseph when his father Jacob died. He fell on his father's face. He wept and he kissed his father. No one can say to us, That we're forbidden to sorrow. No one can say to you that it's wrong to grieve. And you and I ought not to say that to anyone who is sorrowing. But yet, as we look at verse 13, it is quite clear that we can sorrow excessively. We can sorrow without hope, just as the Gentiles do. How are we to be distinguished from the world? If we grieve in the same way as non-Christians grieve. We know, yes, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. We know that we've been made from dust and we shall return to dust. That's evident. We know that the body must decompose in the grave. But we don't accept those facts as those who are atheists accept those facts. We don't approach it with their their point of view, that death is simply an end, an end of existence, and there is nothing more beyond the grave. Death is not the end. And so when we sorrow for Christians who have departed before us, it's natural to weep, to mourn, but not without hope, because there is something more and something to follow. Friends, we can think of ourselves here, and we are all dying. It's a solemn thought to number your days, to think that with each moment, time is running out, Um, to think that we've been allotted just a certain number of days, and no more. It's like the hourglass, the sand coming through. If we could see how little we have left, we would would change the way we live. We would change our priorities. We would think more soberly, having that conscious thought of time running out and soon we'll be cast into eternity. Every one of us is dying and we don't know which of us will die first. But there will be a time when someone in this congregation will pass away and we will grieve. But let us not grieve without hope. Let us grieve in the proper biblical sense of that word. Let us grieve knowing our theology, because good theology brings true comfort to us. If we just grieve in the way the world grieves, it's not a great witness to the world, It doesn't show the hope that we have. Think about the world. The very fact is they are without God and without hope. We have something beautiful. Hope. A hope that does not disappoint. And at death particularly, we have an opportunity to show that. When we're bereaved of a Christian brother or sister, it's an opportunity to show that we think differently about eternity. The Thessalonians... Had a theological error that led to their excessive sorrow. We, we maybe don't have that theological error. But emotionally, isn't there a temptation to over sorrow? So that's the first thing we note. But then, secondly, we see that there's an event that makes all the difference in the world. And it is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in his argument, goes on to verse 14. It's, it's the change that changes everything. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. The Thessalonians believed in the resurrection. We can be sure of that. You can't be a Christian without believing in the resurrection. It's a necessary point of doctrine to know that Christ died, but on the third day he rose again. They knew that. They believed it. And yet, they didn't see fully the ramifications for them from the resurrection of Christ. There was a disconnect in their mind. Maybe they understood better how his death uh, was a substitute for their death. How Christ went to the cross and, and bore the wrath of God. A cursed death. Those who are hanged in a tree are cursed by God. And there he made atonement for the sin of his elect people. Fully satisfying divine justice and reconciling us to God. They understood that. No doubt. And now Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive and that's a good thing. We don't worship a dead saviour but one who is alive. But is that the only ramification of his resurrection? Well Paul says no. Paul says that If we believe that Jesus rose, even so, he will do the same for us, for those who sleep in Jesus. You see, Jesus arose on that glorious Sunday morning, and he changed the day, didn't he? No longer are we to think of it simply as a Sunday, a common day. But we're to think of it as the Christian Sabbath, the holy day that he has set apart. By his rising from the dead. We call it the Lord's day. Because he gives dignity to the day. Because of his resurrection. He arose. He rose bodily. He wasn't a vision. He wasn't a ghost. Or a phantom. He was a real body. He ate. And he drank before his disciples. They could see that. He rose in the same body that he'd had as he lived on earth. Because they could see the marks where the nails had been driven through his hands. And the spear uh, went through his side. And yet it was a glorious body. It was raised in glory. And because he lives, now we who trust in him also live. Of course, we live spiritually. Because no longer are we dead in trespasses and sin, but we're made alive together with Christ, for by grace we have been saved. Remember in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, God said to them, On the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. Certainly, certainly die. And the atheists would look at that passage and say, well, they didn't die. They were still alive. If you're to believe the biblical account, they lived for 900 plus years more. In what sense did they die? Well, of course, not only were they beginning the process of dying, but spiritually they died. Dead in trespasses and sins. And they passed on that sin from generation to generation that we're all born in sin. And so they were dead. Spiritually speaking. They didn't have the close fellowship with God that they had had in the cool of the day in the garden. They were expelled from the garden of Eden. That that, that was paradise. The garden of delight. They were cast out no longer to taste of its joys. Sin barred them from it. They were dead. And so it is spiritually speaking that we are born conceived in sin dead and we need to be made alive and it's only by the virtue of christ's resurrection that any soul can be raised to true life to everlasting life and of course jesus gives that but that's not the only ramification of his resurrection the point is that it's not just that we're spiritually alive but that our bodies must be raised to life also it impacts us physically. The dead in Christ shall rise. So much so that Paul describes those who are dead as sleeping in Jesus. It's a lovely phrase there in verse forty: Sleeping in Jesus. Resting in him. It's a peaceful night's sleep for them. Sleeping in his arms. The best sleep They could possibly have no more suffering, no more pain, no more of the burdens of this life, no anxieties to come bursting in and interrupt them. No, they're in the arms of Jesus, safe. Yes, they may be buried six feet below the ground. The bodies of believers are still united to Christ, and even their dust is dear and precious to him. When someone goes to sleep, what do you expect? But that they will wake up. Isn't that what you expect? When you, when you put your head on the pillow at night, you expect that in the morning you'll have to get up and get on with your jobs and all oh, that must be done. Well, so it is for saints, now sleeping, but then they will awake. But it's necessary for us to ask which part of man sleeps because we're made of two constituent parts. The body and the soul. God formed man from the dust of the earth. He made the made shape of the human body. And then he breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And then he became a living being. Body and soul are united together. And we've never experienced anything else. Your soul has always been united to your body but at death, of course, we know there's a separation, a rending of the two. Which part of man sleeps? There's a doctrine called Christian mortalism, which is the sort of more formal title for it, but we, we would maybe call it soul sleep, that some believe, particularly in the cults. But we must reject any idea that the soul of believers sleeps after death. Think of what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. He said to him, "Today you will be with me in paradise." Not in the future, not in some time. What were two thousand years on? And how many more years will it be until Christ returns? Two thousand plus years until you'll be with me in paradise. That wasn't the promise he gave. Today, today. But if you were to watch with your eyes, you saw Jesus' body taken down from the cross and the thief's body taken down from the cross and both would have been buried. Their bodies laid in separate tombs. So in what sense were they together in paradise? Their souls. Their souls were present in heaven. It's not the soul that sleeps. Think of the martyrs in Revelation that are around the throne. They're not sleeping. They're awake, they're praying to God, crying out for vengeance. How long until you bring vengeance? We've been martyred. And and there's continually uh, persecution on earth. How long until you make every wrong right? The souls of believers. Do not sleep. They're very much awake, very much alive, very much engaging in the worship of God. But the body, well, we know what happens to the body. It's buried. And in that sense, we can talk of it as a sleeping. Biologically, it's decomposing. Of course, we know that. And yet, in reality, Because the bodies of believers are so united to Christ, it is sleeping, it is resting, and that body will rise. As sure and certain as we hope tomorrow we will rise from our beds, so too it will rise in the resurrection. The word cemetery itself is a word that signifies that. It simply means a sleeping place. It's like a dormitory. And that is what a cemetery is for for those who are believers in that they are sleeping in the arms of Jesus and they shall rise in the resurrection. See, union with Christ secures that. If you believe that Jesus rose on the third day, which is a cardinal point of our theology, believe also that all sleepers in Jesus will rise on the last day. And to so the point applied to the Thessalonians. These people who have died in Christ are no worse off than you who remain. They're, they're not in a, a worse position. They're not losing out. They're, they're not going to lose a blessing at, at the second coming of Christ. They are very much alive, asleep, resting, and they shall rise again. And that's an encouragement for us not only as we think of our own death, but as we think of those who have preceded us in the Lord. But then let's move on to the resurrection on the last day itself. We don't have time to consider all the elements of this day, but what a, what a powerful picture we have here of what occurs. Um, we, we see... In verse 16, that the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. I think this is the shout of the Lord Jesus Himself. This is His voice that is heard. Think of Psalm 29 and everything it talks about, the powerful voice of God and all that it accomplished. It shakes the earth. Well, this will be the voice of Christ. It will be heard, it will thunder over the waters. It is the voice of authority speaking out, for this is the king returning in all his glory and he will shout. But not only that, we have the voice of an archangel. Another sign that is heard. um, This is the leader among the angels. I think in this sense we have the angels who accompany, accompany Christ as he returns. Hosts and hosts of them coming as a great army. But there's an archangel at their head. And he shouts out also. His voice will be heard on earth. And then there's the trumpet of God. We sang from Psalm 81. Of the trumpet. Blow the trumpets at the new moons. At the feasts and so on. The trumpets were used in the Old Testament. To call God's people together. And so there will be a calling together of God's people. Of those who lie in in the tombs. In the graves. And of those who are still alive on earth, the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. It shall happen in a twinkling of an eye. It's a loud noise that is heard on that day. These three signs, the Lord's voice, his shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. In this way we see that Christ's return is public. <laughs> It is loud. It is sudden. But no one will miss it. As Revelation says, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. think about his first coming for a moment. How he was born in a low condition. How he was laid in a manger. It was obscure. How few were aware that the king was born. But on this day, no one will miss it. There will be no corner of this earth where some sin has been buried that they won't hear the Lord's authoritative voice to come out of the tomb. Remember how he was at the grave of Lazarus. And what did he do? But he said, Lazarus, come out. And what did Lazarus do? But he immediately arose from the grave and came out. And so it shall be on this great day. All those who sleep in Jesus will be awakened with a loud noise. There'll be no sleeping in. There'll be no missing it. No, they will wake up. And we see here the dead rising. And we see the saints being snatched up, plucked up. It's quite almost a violent term. There's no violence done to those who are still on earth. But it's still quite a sudden Uh, thing that happens to them there. Verse 17. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. It's a seizing of them. Lifted up into the air to meet the Lord himself. Won't this be a great day of joy for those who believe in Jesus? Because friends, think about it. Think about all those people that you have known and loved who have died in faith. All those who are buried somewhere, you can go to their grave and see the tombstone. And how dearly you miss them because of all the times you had fellowship together. They're gone. And you will not see them in this life until this day. But what a joy it will be to be reunited. Think of when you have Christian friends who live far away. The joy of being together again, of being restored to fellowship. It's a good thing. Well, so it will be on this day. For the Thessalonians, you know, they're grieving those who have preceded them. They feel they've missed out. but a day is coming when they'll be reunited to one another's fellowship. Think of all those saints of God throughout church history that we read of. Think of books that you and I read where we benefit from the teaching of Christians from the past. Where we read their biographies and we're blessed and encouraged and convicted by their example, the way in which they walked. We will meet them in glory. We will meet them on this day because the dead in Christ are raised and those who remain on earth are brought together there's a greater joy even than that it's the fact that we shall meet the Lord verse 17 halfway through we're taken up to the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord there's a meeting first of all a meeting of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the returning King he comes as judge that he comes as our king and we will welcome him. We thought not too long ago of the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. That will pale away in comparison to the welcome that Christ will receive on this great day. When all those who have believed in him and owned him and submitted to him will delight in his coming. Friends, think of that phrase and thus we shall always be with the Lord. What a precious thought that is to us. To think of always being with him. I think the only way we can really think of it. Is to think in comparison. To what we experience now. Yes we know that the Lord is everywhere present. The infinite cannot be contained. The infinite It cannot be just in one place, but is everywhere. The Lord, as we read in Psalm 139, is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He is in heaven and he is in hell. He is everywhere. But he is present differently in particular places. The presence of the Lord in heaven is not the same as the presence of the Lord in hell. At least in our experience of it. Because heaven is a place simply of love and joy. It's a place of everlasting life, whereas hell is a place of punishment, torment, and darkness. Friends, even on earth, although the Lord is everywhere present, our experience of him is different. He is particularly in public worship. That is the, the best place to meet him. He loves uh, the gates of Zion more than the dwellings of Jacob. He is particularly interested in the corporate gathering together of his people, where two or three call upon his name. He is there. He is there with them. And so there's that special presence, his presence of grace, where his face shines upon us. He's not everywhere present in the same sense. But here we look forward to the day when we will always be Be with him. Now we are physically absent from him. He is physically absent from us. Though you do not see him, yet you believe in him. You love him. You rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. But he's absent from you. We don't even know what he looks like. Besides the description of revelation of him in his glory. We're absent. Then we shall be physically present. Now we have the blessing of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And a union with Christ by faith. But then there will be a physical nearness. A closeness. But also we think of it being with him always. In the highest sense of being with him. It's not just that we, 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 we are coincidentally together. But it's that we are with him in virtue of his resurrection. The spiritual life that that we have as believers is in virtue of his resurrection. We've been raised together with Christ. But then there shall be that full resurrection, the completion of our salvation. The virtue of Christ's resurrection will have its full fruition in that we shall be with him, not just in soul, but in body also. But think also of our fellowship with him now. Think of how it's spoiled by sin. When we sin against the Lord, we feel very much uh, like we have moved away from him. Perhaps we feel like the cloud has gone in front of the sun. Perhaps we feel spiritual desertion. The Lord seems to have left us to ourselves. Think of The woman in the Song of Solomon. The Lord knocked at the door. Her beloved. And yet she was too lazy to open the door to him. She was sluggish. She had a spiritual duty. She had a a rich opportunity. And yet she waited. She hesitated. And when she finally opened the door, where was her Lord? He was gone. And how she had to search through the streets. How she was beaten, abused through that time. Until eventually she found him. Isn't that our experience in this life? As we go through uh, sin, as uh, as we can be sinning, not just committing sin, but omitting to do the things we ought to be doing. We lose a sight of our beloved. And we lose his fellowship for a time. But then, always with the Lord. It's not just sin that spoils our fellowship with him. It's also our own limitations, our own weaknesses. Think about a a Sabbath day well spent when we engage in public worship morning and evening where we fellowship together, where we spend the day in each other's company. We sing the Psalms together, but it reaches the end of the day and we're tired. We're exhausted and we just can't continue on. We need to go to our beds. (coughs) We're limited by a finite body. We're limited by bodily ailments, sicknesses and so on. But then we will always be with the Lord. There will be no end to it. There will be no having to wake up on a Monday morning to go and do other things. No, then we shall always be with the Lord. But then also we think of now... When we fellowship with the Lord, when we commune with Him, we're dependent upon the ordinances, aren't we? We're dependent upon the Word of God and the preaching of His Word and coming together like this in corporate assembly. But then we shall be in His immediate presence. See, now we see as in a glass dimly, but then face to face, then our faces will shine. With real glory. We shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. Always with the Lord. Think of that forever. No end. No interruptions. Nothing to distort it or mar it. But always forever with him in his presence. You see the intermediate state. That is what happens after death. When when the soul of believers Go immediately into the presence of God. The bodies remain on earth. And Paul speaks of it as being absent from the body, but present with the Lord. But there's something better, isn't there, than the intermediate state. The whole idea of calling it intermediate means that it's only temporary. It's to lead to something else, and it's to lead to something better. And it's when this day happens. The final state when our body will be present with the Lord. Body and soul reunited and with the Lord forevermore. Friends, as we think of that phrase and as we take it to heart, verse 18 shows us how we are to apply it. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Every Christian goes through bereavement at some point. Every Christian meets someone that is bereaved. Every Christian has an opportunity, no more than an opportunity. Every Christian has the duty to comfort one another. It's not just serving people who comfort. These are not just the words that ministers preach. These are not just what ministers are to take to the homes of those who are bereaved. This is for all of you. Take it to your own heart and comfort one another of these words. Obviously not just ourselves here, but other Christians. Anyone who goes through this time uh, of grit, sorrow, show the hope that we have that the world does not share. But then also um, our duty of course is that we must fall asleep in Jesus. Friends, be prepared for the day that you die, because every one of us will die. It has been appointed for man once to die, and then comes the judgment. How will you die? In what way will you die? Know for certain that there is something beyond death. Time stretches into eternity. You will go to a destination, either to heaven or to hell. If we want to always be with the Lord, we must be with the Lord now. We must put our faith in him now. And as we approach the hour of death, to fall asleep in Jesus. To rest in him alone for eternal life. There's no other way. There's no other way to come to the Father but through him. The words... There at the end of verse 17. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Our beautiful and rich words to the Christian. But think of the opposite. If that be true, the opposite is also true. That those who are outside of Christ shall always be without the Lord. Always without him. Do you even know what that would be like? To be in such abject darkness. That every blessing of God's common grace that you experience now will be taken from you. Because then you will not deserve it. Just as you don't deserve it now, then you will not receive it. It will be gone. And you will be without the Lord. Don't think to yourself that there will be a time for grace, a second chance. I don't have to worry about it now, but when I get there, surely, surely when I get to this day, he will give me another opportunity. As I've, not, I've not been as bad as other people here. There will be a chance at least. Because the minister always says that the Lord is gracious. And isn't that what grace is? To give second chances. Friends, if we want to always be with the Lord, we must be with him now. And we must be secure with him and sleep in the arms of Jesus in death. Otherwise, we shall always be without the Lord. This passage here, particularly, is spoken to the Christians in Thessalonica and the Christians in our midst. We can comfort one another with these words. But there's precious little comfort in these words for those who refuse Christ. There's nothing here for you unless you turn from your sin. Of rejecting him. Believe in him. And then fall asleep. In the arms of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand quick. Lord our God. We go through the, the weeks of our life. Here on earth. And we are constantly confronted with death. We know of people who have died. We know of people who are bereaved. We know of people um, who are quickly approaching their death. And Lord, we, we live in a time of sorrow and grief. We pray that we would take these words to heart and that we would be comforted by them with the thoughts that all those who trust in Jesus simply sleep awaiting the resurrection. We pray that each one of us would be prepared for this great day. And how we long that the Lord Jesus would return. We know that there are things yet to be accomplished. We know that there are uh, things that must occur. uh, Promises yet to be fulfilled. Nevertheless, we plead, Lord, hasten the day. And come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen we'll conclude with singing from Psalm 16 Psalm 16 and from verse 8 to the end this is the promise of the resurrection of Christ and as we have seen by virtue of our union with Christ these are blessings that we receive in him Psalm 16, verse 8. Before me still the Lord I sent, sith or since, since it is so that he doth ever stand at my right hand, I shall not moved be. Because of this my heart is glad, and joy shall be expressed even by my glory, and my flesh in confidence shall rest. Because my soul in grave to dwell shall not be left by thee, nor wilt thou give thine Holy One corruption to see. Thou wilt me show the path of life. Of joys there is full store before thy face. Thy right hand are pleasures evermore. Psalm 16, verses eight to the end. Let's stand to sing. Before me, sir, the Lord, I search today.